Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, got a great show for you today, starting off with the first 2020 edition of Fantasy Hipster with Matt Eddy, identifying some of the under-the-radar young prospects who can help your fantasy team, and we're already seeing help their teams in real life here in the early going. We're also going to talk about the 16-team playoff. Matt and I discussed our MLB season preview podcast last week, what the postseason we thought would look like under the traditional format. Shortly after that podcast went live, MLB announced they were expanding the postseason field to 16 teams. The dynamics have changed, and we're definitely going to dive into that. Matt, fantasy hipster, you've been our guy. You created the term in regards to David Bodie. You were on him long before anyone else, and he has certainly turned into a very fine major leaguer for the Cubs, as well as a valuable player in fantasy. Who are some guys you're looking at now based on what you've seen the first week of this season, as well as just prior reputations and things we knew coming in? Yeah, I think, um, well, thanks for that intro, Kyle. Um, yeah, like the idea here is we want to get you into these guys before before they become popular. Um, I think in the early going, the, a lot of the focus is on saves, speculations, and major league bullpens, particularly on some of the the bad teams or mediocre teams where there's some uncertainty in the role, the ninth inning role. Um, so we've, we've handpicked a few guys here. I think um, James Karinczak of the Indians deserves mention. I know the Indians are a good team um, and they have a closer, but I think I would keep an eye on Karinczak uh, just for that crazy strikeout rate, crazy stuff. Um, it, Karinczak is somebody who's caught your eye as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he put up just some eye-popping numbers last year uh, in the minor leagues. It was kind of a video game-esque. And then, you know, every year I do our 15 players turning scouts heads in spring training. And he was the first name off a lot of scouts' lips, just in terms of what he was showing them in spring training. You have the delivery that's, you know, very, very hard to pick up the baseball. You have this power 12 to 6 curveball that some evaluators thought was an 80. I mean, just everything, the way his stuff works out of his delivery, the, the pure quality of the stuff. This is someone who's very, very, very difficult to hit. We've seen that at every level. And he was off to a good start here in 2020, three innings, four strikeouts. Um, there's a lot to like here. And, and you're right, with Brad Hand in the fold, I don't know how soon we're going to see James Krinchak become the Indians' closer, but it's not a stretch to say that in the future that could very well be his role. Yeah, and, you know, there's might be some temptation there to move the left-hander into a seventh or eighth role, depending on the lineup, um, the opposing lineup, to get that left-on-left matchup. Um, you know, there's some – you know, the, line, the ninth inning, you're guaranteed to see pinch hitters, and teams generally have more right-handed hitters on the bench. So, you know, there might be some – some desire there, but that's not going to happen anytime soon, especially with the team winning. Okay, so some other young arms on some of the, you know, not not the the prime contenders in the American League. You know, I've, I'm looking at Jordan Romano with the Blue Jays. You know, the saves are going to Anthony Bass so far. 
Um, but that's something that could reverse if Bass struggles. Uh, Romano's a good arm, but I think you also um, have you also like Romano's upside too. Yeah, so uh, just to give our readers a peek behind the curtain here, while Matt and I were doing our show planning and exchanging names, the first name that I said is, hey, this is someone we absolutely should highlight here is Jordan Romano. He really caught my eye just seeing how much his stuff had ticked up uh, during an exhibition against the Red Sox before the season started. Romano did not have a good year last year at all. Uh, his fastball was averaging around you know, 94, 95, plenty of loud stuff, but it was very, very hittable. Opponents hit 361 off of him last year against his fastball, I should say. And again, he looked like maybe he'd be one of those guys who's kind of a hard thrower, but not sure if you could trust him in high leverage relief. Well, he came out this year, and I just remember seeing that Red Sox exhibition. All of a sudden, he's pumping 98-99, painting corners. I was like, whoa, this is a different guy. This is a very, very, very impressive arm. And we've seen it manifest so far here in the early going. Four scoreless appearances, six strikeouts, two walks. Again, he's pumping 98-99 now. And all of a sudden, a fastball that was very, very hittable last year. Again, small sample size so far. But batters aren't touching it this year. You add in a slider that, again, even when he struggled last year, guys struggled against. They're continuing to struggle against it now. That is also up about uh, three, four miles an hour in terms of his average velocity compared to last year. So his stuff is ticked up across the board, and all of a sudden he just looks absolutely dominant in Blue Jays' bullpen. I like that pick. Um, and then there's a couple other guys who are in more committee situations right now, but I would definitely uh, tab these guys if you have deep rosters, um, especially – since they might be minorly eligible for you. Um, the first would be Kyle Zimmer of the Royals, you know, finally healthy uh, for now. Is that good stuff? There's some, you know, the bullpen hierarchy has not been established. They, um, Mike McKinney has um, Trevor Rosenthal and um, Greg Holland in the kind of the grizzled veteran role, but Zimmer could work his way into ops later in the year. Good arm. And, and the Mariners have um, Dan Altavia recorded his first save last night. I thought that was interesting. You know, a shorter right-hander, big fastball, big spin. And what I like in this case, even though it's a committee situation, is that the Mariners are spotting him against the other team's big hitters. You know, he's faced Bregman. He's faced Trout. Um, so I think there is some, some hint there that he is going to be one of the high-leverage guys with the potential for saves. What's interesting about these two guys, you know, the first two guys we mentioned, James Karinczak and Jordan Romano, were never top, top prospects at any point really in their careers. We knew about them and we've talked about them. And if you read BA, you've seen their name pop up over, over the years, but they were never these elite, elite guys. Whereas Zimmer and Altavia have a little bit of prospect pedigree. Zimmer, of course, was a first round pick. Uh, his road back to the majors after multiple injuries has been well chronicled. It's good to see him have some success. You know, the Royals back of their bullpen is interesting because you have those veterans. Ian Kennedy came into the year, expected to be their closer. Mike Matheny has actually, you know, reading between the lines without saying it directly, but he's actually started to favor Greg Holland, who's back in Kansas City in the closer role over Ian Kennedy. And then you mentioned you still have Trevor Rosenthal there as well. So, you know, with Zimmer, I feel like it's risky given his injuries and there's guys in front of him. How much can you bet on a guy with his injury history in fantasy, Matt? Oh, not much. Do not speculate good money. <laughs> this is just a long, long shot. You know, if you're really looking ahead, especially if, if Holland and Rosenthal pitch well, they, make, they would make nice trade chips. So this is long, long term. Altavia is someone, though, that I am kind of high on. So I did the Mariners top 10 for us back my first year at BA. 
post-2016. And in the course of my reporting and talking to scouts, both inside and outside the Mariners organization, scouting directors and front office members, I ultimately settled on Dan Altavia as one of their top 10 prospects. Now, again, they were a weaker system that year, but I slotted him in as their number nine prospect. He had made his major league debut and showed you some really good stuff. He has not been able to kind of repeat that. Uh, he came back out in 2017, was fine. 2018, partial season was okay, but the control wasn't great. Really fell apart last year. But you're right, watching him, especially last night against the Angels, go in and get that save against the meat of their order. There's something there. And I do think this is one of those cases of, like you said, hard thrower on a bad team, especially a team with a really, really bad bullpen. I mean, a lot of the guys the Mariners are running out there right now are the very definition of quad A depth, triple A type guys that you're just hoping one of them breaks through into the majors. But I do think Dan Altavia is a legitimate bona fide major leaguer. And in a Mariners bullpen that doesn't have that many guys like that, because again, this is a rebuilding team. I actually do feel, you know, like someone he is worth betting on. I mean, his fastball velocity is good. His fastball spin is solid. There's a lot to like here. Yeah, I agree. And then we had one position player we wanted to, to drop on you. He's not well-owned in uh, most fantasy formats, but he should be because he's legit. Why don't you take us away? Edward Olivares, the Potters outfielder, I highlighted him a little bit today in our Rookie of the Year stock watch uh, up right now at BaseballAmerica.com. This has been a kind of a fascinating guy. So he signed for $1,000 with the Blue Jays out of Venezuela in 2014. I first heard his name in 2017 when he was playing at low class A Lansing as a teammate of Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I remember, you know, we were talking to scouts a lot that year about Vlad and Bo. And one of the things we do at Baseball America is we always check on, okay, how are the top guys doing? But one question that I always make sure and ask scouts at hey, is there anyone out there opening your eyes that's maybe under the radar, someone that's not getting a lot of love, but, you know, it's a pretty good player. And Edward Olivares' name kept coming up again and again and again and again. Sure enough, after that season, the Padres acquired him in a trade for Jan Hervis Solarte, and we've seen Olivares progressively get better. I saw him at Lake Elsinore a couple years ago, and he was interesting because he was this really, really good athlete with a good body, showed you a lot of tools, but the gameplay was just a little bit underwhelming. He had plus speed, but he was only showing you average run times on the basis. He had long strides in center field, but he was getting late jumps and bad reads and balls were falling that shouldn't. He had power and a good swing at the plate, but the approach wasn't there. So again, as long as cases of, okay, good athlete, good tools, but how much is he going to get to it? And a lot of Potter's officials I talked to talked about just, you know, effort and focus were not there. Well, what we've seen happen, and we see this happen with guys, is the closer they get to the majors and the older they get, they just mature, the effort and focus starts to really dial in. We saw him take a huge stride forward last year at AA Amarillo. And again, talking to a lot of evaluators that said, you know, I think he's still a fourth outfielder, but every time you checked up on him, he was trending up further and further and further. Spring training this year, another guy's getting rave reviews from both uh, Padres officials in camp and opposing scouts. And then when I made some calls on summer camp for the Padres, two, three weeks before opening day rosters broke, I remember them saying, he's going to make the team. He's added a lot of muscle. Some said it was five pounds, some said it was 10, some said it was more. And all of a sudden, you talk about a guy with tools, and it's everything's starting to manifest on the field. I, to me, what's been most noticeable about how the Padres have used him here in the early going, and again, it's still early lock and change, but coming into the year, 
the expectation was, okay, the Padres main outfield, once they traded Franchi Cordero, and Parkas Oliveras was looking so good. But we thought the Padres' main rotation was going to be Tommy Pham, Trent Grisham, and Will Myers with Josh Naylor, those four guys filling the three outfield spots and the DH role. Well, Oliveras is getting more at-bats. He's playing more than Naylor's right now. What we've actually seen is Oliveras has been either in left or right field when Pham and Myers you know, need a DH day. He's pushing his way up the Padres' outfield depth chart. He's getting playing time, and he's performing. He went two for four yesterday. He's hitting the ball hard. He's showing he can play both corners. There's something here, and I, and I do think you know, we're seeing the talent come out. And even in a crowded Padres outfield, he's getting playing time, and, and that's telling. Yeah. Uh, on that first point you made, like when I first saw him in, in a Padres game, I was like, wow, this guy looks the part. And then you watch him play and you become convinced pretty quickly. You know, he was a guy I was sleeping on. I did not um, think of him too highly last year based on his double A season, which was good, but not great. And um, he's really proved me wrong. I, I'm, I'm in on Edward Olivares. And again, it's not like this guy came out of nowhere. He's still ranked as one of the top 20 prospects in the AA Texas League last year for us at Baseball America. He's been in the Padres rankings in the prospect handbook a couple years in a row. It's not like this is a nobody, but again, he was in the 10 to 20 range of the Texas League top 20. He was in the 10 to 20 range of the Padres farm system. Now, it's a very good farm system. and some others, he would have been higher. But again, I think we're seeing a guy that People thought was a, you know, fine player and should be, you know, a major leaguer, but probably more as an extra outfielder type showing, hey, there's more here. And again, let's go back to this is a guy who every time you call and check up on him, the report's better. The report's better. He's continually trending up. He's 24 years old. There's more growth to come. This is a good player that I certainly think is worth stashing in a fantasy league. And then also, I mean, he's looking like a keeper on the Padres roster for the long term. What that role is long term still has to be seen. There's still growth that has to happen. But we've highlighted a lot of relievers. And as we know, relievers are very, very uh, fungible. And just when it looks like one of them has dialed it in, he falls back to earth year to year. From a position player standpoint, though, this is the guy I'm watching so far in terms of guys who are not owned in a lot of fantasy leagues and frankly are probably not getting a ton of attention just in Major League Baseball in general. I concur. So with that, Matt, one of the things I want to hit on with some of these guys we've talked about is all of a sudden they have a chance to play a part in the playoff races. Now, again, we put out our MLB preseason podcast last Thursday in advance of opening day. A few hours after we released it, Major League Baseball made the official announcement they're expanding to 16 teams for the postseason. Obviously changes the dynamic of everything. And two players we highlighted here were players on the Blue Jays and the Padres. And to me, those were the two teams that benefit the most from this expansion. Two teams that were probably going to be third place in their divisions. You know, maybe they sneak into second if something happens, but they're in divisions with behemoths. The Blue Jays having to deal with the Yankees, the Padres having to deal with the Dodgers. There are a lot of other wild card contenders in their leagues. All of a sudden, they go from teams that, okay, you know, if everything breaks right, they'll be 500 ish in a shortened season to, hey, that's going to be enough to get them into the postseason. Uh, yeah, 100%. I think this really helped a lot of the, the, the coin flip types of wildcard contenders and conversely really hurt some of the favorites. I think the Dodgers in particular having to navigate what is now an expanded playoff field, kind of you know, searching for that title to kind of validate what a great team they've been the last you know, four seasons. Um, that, <laughs> I also saw that effect 
as part of the expanded playoff field. And there's no question. I think for any top contender now, the fact you have to play an extra series, the fact that your pitchers are going to have to throw more innings to get you through the gauntlet, it does you know take away some of the advantages. I still do feel like the Dodgers and the Yankees are the teams to beat. Again, I'm going to bet on the talent, and to me, those are the two most talented teams. Do you feel like this changes who your picks would be for the World Series? Because again, the structure of everything completely changes here. No, it wouldn't change it, but I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, the field now becomes a much a much better bet than one of the favorites. Just the randomness of these short series, you know, you just never know. Again, I mentioned the Padres and the Blue Jays. I also look at a team like the Mets who, you know, I thought had a chance to finish second in the NL East and maybe even first if they had full health. Marcus Stroman going down with an injury sort of pushed them back to the third in the pecking order in the NL East, in my opinion. But again, for a team like that, you know, again, all of a sudden you go from, hey, we might have a chance to contend to we have this really, really rough injury that really could set us back and be the difference between being in the postseason or not to all of a sudden second life. That, that's another team here that I think benefits from this greatly. Yeah, and another sneaky factor here is that um, Michael Waka and David Peterson look pretty good first time through. You know, they, they will miss Stroman, no doubt. But Waka's up to 94-ish right now. The changeup is there. Uh, David Peterson had an exceptional major league debut against a, a very good Red Sox lineup. I mean, we know the pitching staff isn't great. But it's a good Red Sox lineup, five and two-thirds, got the win. Um, he's, he's got some deception, you know, extension in his delivery. And he, he locates off speed. I think he's a perfect, he'll be perfectly fine at the back of the rotation this season. The one other team that immediately jumped out to me as someone this helps is the Colorado Rockies. You know, I've been talking about this for a while that, again, it became very, very popular, it seemed like, for people to bash the Rockies. There were some things that were said by owners that definitely uh, did not pass the smell test. There's obviously been some poor free agent signings, followed by a lack of free agent signings this past offseason. So some of the criticism was warranted, but I thought that people just kept piling on to the point that they completely missed that, hey, this is still mostly the team that made the postseason back-to-back years in 2017, 2018. All that happened was Kyle Freeland and Antonio Sensatella took steps back. The bullpen was an issue, but they got rid of some of the guys who had been the bullpen problems. They waived Brian Shaw and Jake McGee. A lot of this was just going to be, hey, if Freeland and Sensatella can get back and, and be even just a little better than they were last year, I still think this is a team that has a chance to be competitive and in an expanded playoff field, maybe be the team that takes that seventh or eighth spot in the National League. While they're off to a 4-1 start, they've outscored opponents 21-9, to all on the road. Again, there's a long way to go. You don't want to go crazy over small sample sizes in a shortened season when a lot of teams and players aren't built up yet. But you watch them play, they have as much talent on the field as anyone in terms of position players. They're winning away from home. If their pitching can keep it up, again, namely Freeland and Sensatella backing up Gray and Marquez, which is not a crazy stretch, I think this is a team that, again, goes from, okay, maybe if things break right, they're in that 500 range to all of a sudden, maybe they're in the postseason for the third time in four years. Yeah, I think you're right um, that the position depth on this team is very good. Um, you know, they don't, they're not quite one to nine because they don't get a lot of offense out of catcher. Um, but uh, as you said, if Freeland and Sensatella can keep up their end of the bargain, then they will be in much better shape than they were last year. 
So far, so good. Each of them gave the Rockies a solid first start. We will see if they're able to continue that. And the bullpen uh, is always iffy there, but so far it's been off to a good start. Again, though, only five games, so you don't want to go too crazy. Matt, the other big story in Major League Baseball this week was the news of the Marlins coronavirus outbreak. The total is now up to 17 players and two coaches. We've written about it up at Baseball America, but one of the things that I come back to from a baseball perspective, and again, I want to reiterate this, this is all secondary. The most important thing is the health and safety of these players and these coaches as individuals, as citizens, not merely for their profession. We hope they all get healthy and are able to return safely as soon as possible. From the baseball perspective, what immediately jumped out to me was we saw a lot of rebuilding teams, rightly in my opinion, use the player pool as a place to stash all their developmental prospects, make sure these guys get a full year of development that isn't lost as best they can under the circumstances. The Marlins put 14 of their top 16 prospects entering the season in their player pool on their 60-man roster. Only three had played even one game at AAA. These were guys who played last year at AA, were going to start the year in AAA, and truthfully probably still would have been at AAA at this point in the season if a full season had taken place. They added their 2021st round pick, Max Meyer, who again has not pitched above college. This was a group that was going to spend most of the year in the minor leagues. They had very, very few guys with major league experience, veteran depth types, AAA experience types. Well, now that they have had all these positive tests, again, the total is now up to 17 players, they're potentially looking at having to call up 10 12, maybe even more guys from this alternate site camp who have really less than a month of development this year under their belts, who are really truly not ready for the majors. I spoke to a couple scouts and, and the feedback was even their top guys, they're all a year away. You know, maybe Sixto Sanchez, Jesus Sanchez can, you know, handle themselves, but they're not quote unquote ready for the major leagues. And what stood out to me about this is you know, Major League Baseball did not set a threshold for how many players it would take to quote unquote shut a team down or what they would consider to be, in you know, Manfred's uh, words, a quote unquote nightmare scenario. He said he, this did not cross that threshold. However, he had previously said if competitive integrity is risked, that's something they would have to look at. And to me, there's always jokes about, oh, the Marlins, they're not really a Major League team anyway, but jokes aside, Still have Garrett Cooper, you still have Miguel Rojas, you still have Sandy Alcantara, you still have Jose Urania. These are legitimate major leaguers. Jorge Alfaro, they are now all unavailable to play. So you are taking away the best major leaguers from a team, replacing them with guys who pretty much have double A experience only. To me, this is something that crosses the threshold of hey, the competitive integrity is going to be maligned here especially when you look at teams like the Braves, Mets, Phillies, and Nationals, who are now going to be able to rack up wins against this team made up of guys who, for the most part, are not ready to be in the major leagues through no fault of their own. Yeah, that is a notable situation. I think, and we're still kind of crossing our fingers, you know, as fans and, and you know, baseball industry professionals that, that it is contained with the Marlins and has not spread to the Phillies. And that – that is potential is like where the nightmare scenario I think really manifests. There's no question. And again, a Phillies visiting clubhouse attendant tested positive. Obviously, wish him a speedy recovery. We've talked about the expanded postseason and how many more teams get a shot. 
to me, the competitive integrity of it, it is at risk simply because, again, you have these four teams in the East now, the way the schedules have been laid out, that are going, again, to be playing a team that is made up of guys at least halfway who really are not ready for the major leagues in all likelihood. And to me, that's going to allow them to rack up extra wins and possibly take a team in the Central, in the West, and knock them out of the postseason when, again, you were playing a team that was half made up of guys who probably should have been in double, triple A. That, that is tough to square with me. I think that we still need to see how everything comes back. The Marlins have been shut down through August 2nd. They are scheduled to resume playing August 3rd. Seeing how many of the players who tested positive are able to return and what the roster looks like then is going to be significant here. And again, I, I, I want to be clear. I do not think they should have shut the season down. A lot of people immediately went to that extreme on social media. By the same token, this is a very, very, very concerning outbreak that took place within a week of the season opening. I feel like it does threaten competitive integrity. And, and one of the things that jumps out to me is it's important to listen to the science here. And the epidemiologists who are not paid by MLB, who are independent, have said the proper thing to do is to shut the Marlins down for two weeks. MLB has opted to do it only for one. Again, I'm inclined to listen to the epidemiologists in a, in a case like this. We've seen the consequences nationwide of not doing so. Yeah, well said. Do you think, Matt, we, we, there's been so much said about this season and will it be seen as legitimate, you know, the teams who make the playoffs or win the World Series. I tend to say, you know what, this is the situation it is. They're dealing with it the best they can. I'm not going to, you know, say that players and coaches that go out there and give it their all, what they're doing is illegitimate. I don't, I don't feel like that's right. By the same token, do you feel like this takes it down a notch? Just again, we've talked about all of a sudden, if, if this is a team that's filled half with guys from the player pool, it, it's tough to say, oh, you know, that last team that made the postseason field, if they're an NL East team, truly did it the same way a team in the central or westwood on the same level oh yeah i think it raises all sorts of issues um particularly because the more teams you invite into the playoff tournament the more likely you are to have a 500 or even a below 500 team especially in the national league where there's just a lot of parity a lot of good teams there's a chance you get a 500 team in there and maybe they run the table in the playoffs and you get you know the nightmare scenario where you have a 500 team win the world series there's all sorts of scenarios at play, but again, the most important one is, you know, want to see the Mons players get healthy first and foremost, and hopefully get back on the field. Again, there's some very, very talented players on this team. Uh, we talked about it before the season started. We thought this was a long-term sleeper of an organization. Sandy Alcantara is a big part of that. Jorge Alfaro is a big part of that. A lot of the players that are currently unavailable to play are potentially a part of that. So we hope they're able to get healthy and, and back on the field as soon as possible. Matt, to finish on a high note here, just real quick, what has stood out to you most about the first week of the season? Well, I've, I've watched a lot of Padres games just because I'm interested in the makeup of this, of this team. And um, Trent Grisham has made a big impression on me. This guy is stinging the ball. Um, last night, uh, Wednesday night, he hit a ball that looked like it was headed for a splash hit in uh, San Francisco's Oracle Park. I mean, it was a no-doubter to right field. And that, that was impressive. And you know, he's a guy who's worked his way up to the two spot in the lineup for the Padres, and it doesn't look like he's going to relinquish that. Um, do you agree with the Grisham pick? 
Absolutely. You know, I've talked about this a lot. This is a guy who deserves so much credit for completely reinventing himself. He was not very good in the lower levels. His swing was a mess. It was just not a good look in anyone's eyes for years. He completely reinvented himself, found the swing that worked for him, and now he looks like a keeper. He had the big home run, and he followed up with a really nice bunt single later in the game. I mean, he can do a load of everything for you. He's getting on base. He's drawing walks. He's kind of been that left-handed hitting on base type in the outfield the Potters have needed and lacked the last couple of years. And again, really small sample, but in the early going, he's showing you everything you want to see. Yeah, and another standout for me in the early going has been brave shortstop Dansby Swanson. Like when this guy came up in 2016, you know, September call-up, you know, he was the top prospect in the Southern League that year. And he comes up and hits 300 with pretty good power. He runs really well. He fields really well. He looked like a star in the making. Um, the last three seasons have been not, not great, <laughs> to, be, to be blunt. You know, like a, he's in the 85 ops plus range, typically, and the bottom of the order type of hitter. But if he keeps hitting like he has early this season, he's at 391 with two home runs, two doubles, eight RBIs. If he keeps hitting like that, I think I would expect him to move up the batting order quite a bit. Like his, he is really socking the ball. This to me is another example of do not give up on guys who are in the majors when they're still younger than 25. We see so, 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 so many hitters click into gear at 26, 27. And the thing with Dansby always stops me. When you watched him play, you could see the talent, you could see the skills. And you go back to last year, you know, the Ops Plus wasn't great, but you have a shortstop who hits 250 with 17 homers, 65 RBIs, 10 stolen bases, playing really good defense. That's still a valuable player, and that was with him missing 30-plus games last year too. So I think there have always been signs, and you watch him play and you see the talent. He just hasn't been able to completely put it all together, at least at the plate. And you're right, in the early going, it looks like we're seeing it. It's really impressive. I wrote in the preseason preview, and we talked about on the preseason podcast, that the bottom of the Braves lineup had a chance to be weak, but if Dansby Swanson and Austin Riley could take offensive steps forward, that would cover that. Well, we've seen Dansby do that. Austin Riley has hit some titanic home runs, including one at City Field a few days ago. So if those two guys can, can continue to be offensive forces and really live up to the potential that made them top prospects in the Braves organization, and there's no reason to think they can't, all of a sudden the Braves are going to look like juggernauts and, and I think should defend their NL East title. Yeah, and I'll never forget the comp I heard on um, Dansby Swanson's swing that first September in the major leagues. Um, SNY's Keith Hernandez said, oh, he reminds me of Paul Molitor with that swing, and that, that has stuck with me. <laughs> it hasn't manifested, uh, but maybe it's beginning to now. Again, it's been encouraging to see from him. You saw signs these last few years, and we'll see if he can really keep it up and take a step forward permanently for the Braves. The other guy that's jumped out to me, again, early season, don't go crazy yet, but Corey Seager. I mean, check out the StatCast leaderboards. He's top 10 the majors in barrel percentage. He's top 10 the majors in exit velocity. I mean, talk about guys who made a splash when they came up. Corey Seager came up as a September call-up, hit 337, and was the Dodgers' starting shortstop in the playoffs that year. The following year wins Rookie of the Year and finishes third in the MVP race. The year after that is an all-star again for the second straight year. was looking like an absolute superstar. And then the injuries hit. He's had injuries with issues with his back. He had elbow surgery. There's been a lot of things that have kind of knocked him down. He barely played in 2018. He came back last year, and he was fine. He wasn't bad, but he wasn't what he was before. 
And it almost feels like he fell by the wayside. Cody Bellinger's emergence, Walker Bueller's emergence. And it's like, oh yeah, and Corey Seager too. This is still a premier shortstop who is rookie of the year and an all-star his first two years in the majors. By the way, last year in his quote-unquote down year, led the National League in doubles. Again, was still a good player. And now as he moves further away and, and looks completely healthy, we're seeing the guy who looked like a future superstar really emerge. Again, it's early. There's a lot of baseball still to be played and a lot of time for him to show he can stay healthy still. But right now he is crushing the baseball and looks great. Oh yeah, 100%. Definitely, definitely a guy you want to keep tabs on. What was notable to you? Kyle Lewis. The Mariners outfielder has looked absolutely fantastic. Again, we have some more on it up at baseballamerica.com as part of our rookie of the year watch. Um, but I was out in Anaheim seeing the Angels play the Mariners and just been watching closely. The swing looks good. He's hitting balls hard. He's beating out infield singles. He's making diving catches in center field. 2016 Baseball America College Player of the Year suffered a catastrophic knee injury a few months into his pro career shortly after the Mariners drafted him. It took so many years for him to get back. He had setbacks in 2017, 2018. He was not completely right in 2019, which, again, was understandable. It was almost his first full healthy season in three years. He still got up to the majors, showed you some power, and now he's looking like a complete player. It has been really, really eye-opening, and it's almost like, hey, this is the Kyle Lewis everyone thought the Mariners were getting when they drafted him in 2016. And seeing a young guy who's been through so much and worked his tail off to play like he's playing, again, small sample size. He's obviously not going to hit 450 over the course of the season. There will be a cool-off period. But just watch him play, and this is a guy you say, yes, this is someone the Mariners can build around. He's their number three hitter. He's their starting center fielder. He's going to be good. He has every chance to be good as long as he can stay healthy. Yeah, I like that one. This is a guy who does hit the ball very hard, and I and like you noted, the makeup and the toughness to come back from all that and establish himself as he has is remarkable. Absolutely. Well, Matt, it's certainly been an eventful first week. And a lot of players showing themselves to be potential keepers in fantasy leagues, expanded playoffs. You know, that was only announced a week ago. It feels like it's been longer, but <laughs> a lot can happen in one week. Obviously, with the Marlin situation, we're seeing some rookies have an impact. So been a busy eventful week and we look forward to uh, many more weeks of busy eventful baseball though hopefully without any more outbreaks of course once again this has been another edition of the baseball america podcast go ahead and give us a review on itunes spotify stitcher whatever platform you're listening i would love to hear from you matt thank you so much for your expertise we appreciate your insight as always thank you kyle all right everyone well that'll do it for matt eddie i'm kyle glazer thanks for listening stay safe out there <laughs>